0: Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, which, by the way, is much more than simply this daily report. It really is a knowledge platform uh, from which we communicate thought leadership on various strategic topics uh, through, yes, the daily reports, but also on these podcasts, and we have webinars and hopefully in the future, some live events. So along with our chief strategist, Shelley Cohan, who, by the way, is a professor at FIT and Syracuse University, we welcome you to our weekly podcast. And today's topic is Crafted with Pride in the USA-2.0. <laughs> Shelley I know you remember this apparel label uh, promoted by the nonprofit Crafted with Pride in USA Council uh, which was established in the mid 1980s uh, to tout American made apparel and uh, to sponsor research studies uh, to determine the consumers apparel preferences as we well remember there was a mass exodus of textile and apparel manufacturers seeking lower cost production uh, in the Far East mainly, and primarily China. So it was a no-brainer, as brands and retailers could increase their bottom lines with this low cost labor. However, of course, there was also a huge loss of millions of jobs that went with it. Uh, So this council was a Hail Mary pass, in my opinion. They tried to enlist brands and retailers to manufacture domestically. And I remember I was at VF Corporation at the time. This was a big deal. Anyway, so get these manufacturers uh, to sew the label of crafted with pride in the USA, convinced that consumers would be proud to select the domestically made garments, even though the price was higher. (laughs) Long story short, the effort bombed. Um, billions of dollars are spent in this thing. Anyway, common sense prevailed, right? I mean, simply, yeah. a consumer, when they're confronted with two choices of, let's say, a pair of jeans, and one is made in China for 15 bucks and another with the USA label on it for 25 bucks, well, I don't have to answer the question, right? Ergo, a half century of foreign made goods, right?
1: That's right, Rob. And I I remember all of that as if it was yesterday. And over time, it wasn't just the textile and apparel industries. It was across all the so-called blue collar industries,
0: the powerful
1: unionization, the Teamsters, the UAW. um, That all lifted wages and built up this middle class. But Mm -hmm. many and many others. But over time, management found lower cost production across the industries. Thus, this ended up lowering cost production, moving everything overseas, and then we essentially hollowed out our middle class. So according to the National Association of Manufacturers, today, less than 10% of private sector jobs are in manufacturing, compared to 40% at the end of World War II. Wow. Um, but it's still a key sector in the economy and one that pays much better than other sectors. The Labor Department reports the average weekly wage for manufacturing jobs is $1250, 1250 per week or 65000 annually. That's 11% more than private sector jobs overall. And get this, Robin, it's 81% higher than most retail jobs. Yep. That's, that's a whole nother subject. But yeah. as you said, you and I have been talking about supply chain collapses and poor management of inventory and attached to those supply chains. And now with technology and superior uh, artificial intelligence and analytics and the calculation that time to market really has a big cost added to it. Um, this as well as increased shipping costs, brands and retailers, as well as other industries, you know, they're able to more efficiently in a lot of cases near shore, Production here closer to home. And in many cases, you know, reshoring or near shoring, including this made to order model, actually bringing manufacturing jobs back to the US. So, in short, the calculation that enough of the co- cost of time lost in shipping would offset the higher US labor costs. And by the way, the inventory flows will be more accurate along with increased agility and more demand responsive to the market real time. All of this increases its efficiency.
0: Exactly, Shelly, all of it. And, And plus our thesis on localization, smaller stores, but more of them in neighborhoods, which means there will be a need for more but shorter supply chains, faster, more responsive, more agile, as you said, and this all drives perhaps a mass exodus out of foreign shores and back to the good old USA.
1: Wouldn't that be great?
0: Yeah.
1: Let me just touch upon the localization effort uh, for a minute, and this you know, smaller cost, uh, smaller stores. So one of the cost of this longer supply chain, you know, this six to nine months out, is the carrying cost of inventory. That's a big component of it. And so for some companies, especially large format stores, general merchandise stores, department stores, discount sectors, the amount of inventory required is tremendous. And now that online has been added and they have this endless aisle, the investment in inventory is huge. For companies that store inventory or end up with a slower turnover, so they end up with added uh, goods at the end of the season, they're going to have higher carrying costs, and of course markdowns like we're seeing right now today. If there's too much stock,
0: oh boy, you got that right. So now you brought up the longer production schedules. Let me also add that with retailers like Macy's, Walmart, Target, and Kohl's, they have really uh, gone after the private label right. that requires longer timelines from design to production. Uh, To be honest, one of the main reasons Kohl's is sitting with so much stock is because of its huge commitment to private label. You know, back in 2015, 48% of the assortment at Kohl's was private brands. And while that has declined in 2021 to 34%, it is still significant. Wow. Yeah, but with, with that said, Uh, Here is a great example of a company, uh, not Kohl's, that is thinking about this conundrum of being relevant in private label goods, but going about things differently. And this one huge example, and that is none other than Walmart, they have for some time declared uh, that they would support American manufacturing wherever it makes business sense. And that commitment was uh, reinforced just last week, Shelley, at a ribbon cutting ceremony for a new factory in Santa Ana, California that will cut and sew apparel exclusively for them. It's a Jordan based manufacturer named Classic Fashion and they will produce garments for Walmart for the next five years. It is expected to create 125 jobs by 2023 uh, before eventually employing 350 people, while that doesn't sound large on on, on the service, uh, it, it's 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 early on, but but for Wal- if Walmart's pursuing this as a strategy, you can bet they'll continue it, and, they, and they're doing it for a good reason. Uh, Walmart reiterated its com a commitment uh, to support <clears throat> to support American manufacturing jobs, pointing out that. Nearly two thirds of the dollars the company spends on products are either made, grown or assembled in the US. Last year, they announced an additional $350 billion investment to that end. So Shelly, I don't know whether or not this is the beginning of brands and other retailers following Walmart's lead, but given our belief about how technology and analytics today can enable the ability, responsive speed, greater accuracy and inventory, and all of the efficiencies driven by these, I have to see this as another huge strategic and structural shift for the industry.
1: Yeah, and I think there's really two dynamics at play here. And we may see more interest in building productions at home and near sourcing and all of that, but also there's a lot of companies, third-party companies, I mean, that have actually figured out how to deliver product to distribution in six to eight weeks using overseas production and more transparency in the supply chain to speed things up. So approvals, design specs, all that stuff. So it speeds up that supply chain. And the growth of made to order, which allows customers the ability to customize a product to fit their needs. These products are actually not produced until the customer places the order. So there's no inventory being held. So, and customers are willing to wait for a SKU because it's being a custom, it's custom made for them. So I don't think they mind the additional wait time and the wait time's not that long. Veer, Bradley, Carthart or some of these uh, retailers that have gone this route. The second big dynamic is the shift of consumer preferences which has shown that consumers will spend more on US made products. So a survey was conducted two years ago, so this is in 2020, which showed that 83% of respondents would pay 20% more for American made. The census from the survey was they believe that the quality is better with USA made products. With that said, this was before the 8.2% higher inflation that we're currently living with. So a budget strapped, American may actually not spend more for American-made products. So Retail Brew, which is one of my favorite publications, along with Harris Poll, did a survey this year in July. So fast forward two years, and it showed that inflation is really taking a bite out of American-made products. Only 48% of those surveyed would actually pay between 10 to 20% more for American-made products. 17% Seventeen percent say they would pay thirty percent more. And Rob I know there's different databases, different surveys, and all that. But it's also a very different time right now.
0: Well, that that's that's the main point, Shelley. Because way back in the '80s, uh, this council was doing all kinds of research and blah blah blah, and they came up with the same wonderful altruistic idea that you know consumers would pay more. But so, you know, what consumers say and what they do can be very different. I mean, you've been involved in research long enough to know that. And I agree, inflationary pricing will have an impact on what and how much uh, people are gonna buy. But inventory optimization is an, imper- an uh, imperative for brands uh, today, as we have discussed many times. Inventory accuracy must be an edict going into 2023 and beyond. And by the way, most importantly, the consumer is the number one beneficiary of this kind of integrated, seamless, and immediate delivery, either on the shelf or online, you know, wherever they are. So, what's your take, Shelly?
1: Well, I mean, spot on, Robin. I do believe closer production facilities may not shift overnight, but strategically, um, it'll be the brands and retailers eventually moving closer to where people live, yeah. you know, and their production and delivery must be closer too. it's obvious Walmart gets this. Of course, they get great PR from saying they're supporting new jobs and in American industry and so forth. But like everything else, it has to make financial sense. Right. It also has to make sense for the brand. It has to be part of it, the ethos of the company. So manufacturing in the U.S. to create create better quality goods really doesn't make sense for a customer base that prefers cheaper options and more replenishment, a la Sheen or Zara. But for companies that it's part of their brand promise, customers become attached to the brand and they're very loyal. American Giant is a great example. This is the maker of the best hoodie ever. And Robin, I really know this because I own two of them. They literally are the best hoodie ever. But Bayard Winther back in 2012 saw a lack of affordable, high-quality American-made products. So the ethos of the brand has really had this really strong, loyal following. Bayard said in a recent interview, speed to market and the better quality control that are available in a domestic supply chain can provide a counterweight to lower labor costs and lack of regulations overseas. He's also of the mind that if we want to make a significant swing and really, truly bring manufacturing back to the U.S., it's actually going to have to take government incentives.
0: Yeah, all these
1: large, big brands, they already have these big commitments to international supply chain, and they just don't have an incentive to change. Well, I would say until the pandemic hit (laughs) and the whole supply chain collapsed. And maybe that's the catalyst to bring on change. Like you and I said before, the pandemic as an accelerant. Yep. And I I mentioned Carhartt earlier. Um, They do about $2 billion annually. And they're a manufacturer of products. They sell to retailers, but they also have their own direct-to-consumer business. Most of Carhartt's products sold to men, women, and children are made in U.S. factories. They're a... Big brand for our beloved Tractor Supply Company. Oh, I know yeah. we're not supposed to have favorites, but what's not to love about Paul, Hal Lawton and Tractor Supply Company? We are just talking about them earlier today. Yep. Um, but, you know, while Car- Carhartt is made in Mexico and China as well, so they have many di- distribution points, the Made in USA line features some of the most iconic pieces. This really goes back to, and it gets its main influence from American Industrial workers. So there's a deep connection there with the products that are American made. So Carhartt manufactures here, it manufactures overseas, and customers can determine which is right for them. And I, I think a hybrid model is smart and similar to what our friends at Walmart are doing.
0: Yeah, you know, also, Shelly, I'm sure you have some numbers uh, about uh, the shift of jobs from the US to other countries in terms of manufacturing. Um, Maybe you can tell us for for all jobs across several industries and then maybe uh, specifically apparel and textile, the numbers have to be uh, tremendous.
1: Sure, absolutely. So despite being a leader, driver of employment growth for decades, manufacturing has shed employment over the last 40 years as the US economy has also shifted to service providing industries. So, if you go way back to June of 79, manufacturer, manufacturing employment reached an all-time peak of almost 20 million. Wow. In June wow. of 2019, employment was down to 12.8 million. So, down oh my to Seven million. And unbelievable. Just, it's unbelievable. And if you just look at apparel and textile industries, they lost... of jobs from June 79 to June 2019. Wow. And I was having so much fun digging through the data, Rob, and I looked at the trade balance um, for the U.S. And back in 1989, the U.S. imported 30% more goods than it exported. 30% more goods in the U.S. were exported than were imported. Sorry, imported versus exported. Fast forward to 2022 that number's risen to 60 percent so we've imported oh my 60% God. more goods than we're exporting as of this year you see it's crazy yeah. i was professoring i like to say professoring that's when i <laughs> talked to colleagues at my professor job and uh todd blumenthal at fit which you know as you know rob and fit does a lot of work on sustainability efforts mm-hmm. yep. um, in the programming curriculum But he was telling me about a new law called the fashion sustainability and social accountability act this this is a state bill for new york and if it passes it's going to make new york the first state in the country to hold the biggest brands in fashion accountable to their environmental and social impact so i'm talking about working conditions labor practices greenhouse gases product processes and chemicals that negatively impact the environment. Well, so good, this,
0: good, good, good for New York. Good. Yeah, good for
1: <laughs> New York. In a yeah. New York Times article, it stated practically every large American and international fashion name, almost all which do business in New York. We're talking about the high-end LVMH, Prada, Armani, down to fast fashion like Shein and Zara. They all would be required to reduce their negative environmental impact at a pace not set Set by their own companies, but by legislation. So, if companies are required to be transparent in their supply chains, the consumer becomes more educated, and then they can begin to make choices based on these factors. Rob, Shelly,
0: let me. Yeah. Let me jump in here one second. The only thing that bothers me is that when I see that the government's going to start to really. pass legislation to regulate and keep people in line and so forth and so on um it it it, it just there there's there's a a dark shadow in there in terms of the bureaucracy and which we've seen over the years and it gets worse and worse so i hope the heck uh the if if there's going to be national industry legislation that the industry leaders are going to strongly influence what The legislators choose to do anyway
1: (laughs) but that's true ron because obviously the legislators don't know anything about you know the fashion industry so having more of a council that helps to create the policy behind it uh you're right um but remember what happened with food labels Hmm. you know imagine you know being able to see (laughs) on your fashion brand, exactly, you know, more details in transparency and supply chain. There's some companies that do this already, you know, Pataga- Patagonia, Eileen Fisher. Oh, yeah. there's other companies that kind of already do this. But when the covers are lifted across some of these practices that are going on with offshore production, laws like this may actually be another catalyst to bring production back to the US. And I was corrected in my terminology, it's not called near sourcing, which is really industry jargon, but it's called right sourcing back to the US, meaning that putting manufacturing back, you know, in the US where it belongs. And part of that goes back to sustainability efforts and everything behind the scenes uh, in terms of being able to produce here versus overseas.
0: Shelley, <laughs> that's it, the whole point. You created the operative word, right sourcing beginning and bringing manufacturing back to the US. And all of what we've been talking about not only makes it possible, but by the way, it also makes it more profitable at the end of the day with the growing understanding of technology and perfecting the use of it to reduce costs and time throughout the supply chain. It will more than offset higher labor costs and therefore higher margins for brands and retailers.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Robin, I'd love to take credit for coming up with the word right sourcing. It really is not my word.
0: <laughs> well, it's from, the, a,
1: it's from a book called uh, Fashionopolis. So anyone in the fashion industry has to read Fashionopolis, um, okay. it's very interesting. So that's where that came yeah. from.
0: Well, that's all right, you can take credit.
1: <laughs> but. Uh, For our listeners, you can find more of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and therobinareport.com. You can look for us on YouTube where we broadcast our podcast as well. And please follow us on social media, link in with us, follow us on Twitter for the latest thoughts about the industry.
0: And I wanna thank everybody once again uh, for joining us today. I'm sure you learned a lot, or I hope you did. And um, as I've said before, if any of you have a topic that you've been thinking about and would like Shelly and I to cover, please send me an email at uh, robin at the robinreport.com. I thank you again.